You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, says this, When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madden, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mishraphoth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them Just as the Lord said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. All the cities of those kings and all their kings. Joshua captured, struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except for Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock and the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baalgad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed 
just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. We would like to pray. Father, um, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this study in the book of Joshua. Um, We thank you for your faithfulness in your word. Your faithfulness to Joshua and to the people of Israel as you led them into the land that you had promised them and as you conquered their enemies. Lord, we know that in this story we see a great picture of Christ and his work at the cross as he defeats our enemies, Satan, sin, the world, the grave, and that you have promised us heaven. So Father, as we study this passage today, I pray God that you would come and speak to our hearts, that your word would be like a two-edged sword, that you would come and do surgery deep into some of the dark corners of our hearts, and that you would help our minds and our hearts to rest on the truth of the gospel, which reminds us that all that we could ever want or ever need is found in Christ and Christ alone. So Father, help us to land there in the shadow of the cross, in the doorway of an empty tomb, holding on to the hope of heaven. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. So the book of Joshua um, is really an exciting book uh, if you uh, read through it. It's an exciting book that is uh, full of stories of war. And uh, for some of you guys in the room, probably for some of you ladies too, maybe you love some of those old war movies, um, can be similar when reading this book. The imagery um, can be similar to movies like Saving uh, Private Ryan or uh, Band of Brothers, one of my favorites. Uh, Pearl Harbor is another one as far as uh, war movies are concerned. There's, there's a lot of them. Uh, even brings up imagery as I was reading through this again this morning of the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, just times where all of the bad guys are just together and they're assembled against this really tiny group of people and you just swear, there's no way, no way the good guys are going to win, right? The book of Joshua is like this. It's really a, a book of ups and downs. It's a book of setbacks and victories. And uh, the question that I think uh, many would ask, and, and I ask this often as I read it, um, how, how am I supposed to read this book, uh, read the text in front of me in Joshua, and how, how, how do I make helpful application to my life? In other words, how, how do I walk away from reading this story? How do I interpret this story in a way that helps me to say, okay, here's what I need to believe about God, And here's what God is calling me to be obedient in. The two sides of application is to believe and to obey. 
Um, it's really what the word application means. And so uh, we run the risk uh, of studying a story like this and filling our head full of knowledge. And there's lots of details in this text that are very fascinating and very interesting. Um, but the reality is head knowledge never saved anyone. Okay, at the end of the day, all the theological learning you can do in a seminary or in any book, it's not going to save you. Um, knowledge is good, though. Don't hear me wrong. I love knowledge. Obviously, you look at my stack of books, you'll know. Joe loves to study. Um, but I've learned more and more and more over the years. Head knowledge never saved anyone. And in fact, some of the people that I've met that probably have the worst lives, the most unchristian lives, are the people that seem to know the most, most about this text. Um, for instance, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the guys who had the collars and had the certificates on their walls in the New Testament. Um, if you're familiar with the story, then you know that they knew it all, and they still killed our Savior. Thank God for them in some way, because without them, Jesus wouldn't have died, right? Um, the point is, head knowledge doesn't save anyone. So how do you read this in a way that leads you to an experiential, transforming encounter with Jesus? I don't know that I will do very good preaching this text in that way this morning, but I will trust that the Holy Spirit will take um, what we study and what I say and use it in that way. One of the answers that I found, you'll see on the screen in front of you, is, uh, is kind of a, it's a principle of interpretation. Um, it's basically called the physical spiritual interpretation. Now, many guys would say, okay, all the physical things that you see in the Old Testament have a spiritual counterpart in the New Testament. Um, all the physical things that we read about in the Old Testament, especially in Joshua, um, then have a direct spiritual application for us. Um, so, so, in other words, um, the, the physical events of, of this story... Uh, they're definitely historically accurate. We won't discount that. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time trying to prove it to you. Um, but they're definitely historically accurate in my estimation. Um, but they're also meant, um, I, and the way that I'm going to put it this morning that you'll see on the screen is, is like a, a wartime strategy. Uh, thinking about the wartime strategy that each of us has. I think we have a tendency to walk through life like somehow um, we're actually in peacetime. But the reality is true peace True, complete, fulfilled peace doesn't happen until you're in heaven. And, and so uh, living in this physical reality, we actually live in the midst of a war. Lots of passages I could go to that would show that, right? Um, primarily Ephesians chapter 6 would probably give us enough to say, yeah, we, we do live in a spiritual reality where there is a war constantly taking place. So physical realities of this story, I think, are meant to point to the wartime reality that we live in spiritually. So they're meant to give us a wartime strategy whereby we might live. So the question that you might ask and that you might write down is, okay, what is my wartime strategy? What does it look like for me to live in a physical reality while there is a spiritual war going on around me? Two quick categories. You could either live completely oblivious to this and kind of pretend like though there's nothing going on, which I think a lot of us could easily fall into. Um, or you could live in a very intentional and proactive way whereby you are engaged in that invisible war. Uh, the reality in all of this, though, is this. I think we can all agree on this. 
I think that we can agree um, that, that this physical world that we live in uh, is sometimes overwhelming. Agree? Sometimes uh, this physical life that we live can be very overwhelming. You've probably experienced your fair share of overwhelming days, right? Uh, days where it feels like your entire world is crumbling around you. Um, maybe that old sinful habit, maybe it rears its ugly head again. Uh, maybe the finances don't cover that unexpected need that popped up. Or maybe it's the weight of that old conflict in your marriage or that friendship or some professional relationship you're engaged in. Um, that old conflict comes back with a massive vengeance that seeks to take you out, right? Um, these are things that we see in the physical realm that we live in. Uh, maybe your physical health deteriorates. I know that this time of year, many of us are struggling with that. Um, in our home alone, we've struggled with this um, um, at some pretty deep levels, really, for our family for the last seven or eight months, if you know what's happening in our family. So um, maybe your physical health deteriorates. Um, uh, maybe, maybe it's just simply that you recognize one day that the longings and the dreams that you had of a better life, um, they become more and more distant, right? Sometimes um, it maybe even feels like all of these things that I've just listed, and maybe even some that I haven't listed that you can possibly think of, that's like they, they band together in, in one kind of like a single, well-planned uh, attack, right? Uh, the, the, in one day, and it just kind of leaves you feeling devastated, leaves you feeling overwhelmed, leaves you wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. Ever have those days? I think most of us in this room could probably share some stories of what those days feel like. The truth is that sometimes life is just simply overwhelming. Agreed? And that's the sense that I get when I read the first five verses of our text. Joshua and Israel have been facing down their enemies right and left throughout the last few chapters of this book, right? <laughs> Uh, there have been a few setbacks, but by and large, the, the overriding story that's going on here is that the Lord has given them one victory after the next as they continue their conquest of the promised land. Uh, but here in these first five verses, Israel's enemies uh, hear of Israel's previous victories, and what do they do? They unite together to wage war against God's people. That's what's happening in the first five verses. And the reality is that they're not an easy foe at all, okay? They're not just an easy enemy that you can just go overcome. Uh, verse 4, if you're looking at verse 4, and it should be on the slide in front of us, but verse 4 uh, reminds us and tells us that the enemy is great in number like sand on the seashore, okay? So if you look at that and you think about it, the enemy is great in number like sand on the seashore, and they're heavily armed with many horses and chariots. Interesting. Uh, the reality of this then is this. Israel is literally outmanned, outgunned, and their enemies are assembled. They're ready to attack, and they're seeking their destruction. It'd be a rough day, right? So sometimes life is just simply overwhelming. The second thing that I see in the text uh, is in verse 6. So you could move to the next slide. And it's a question. In light of all that's taking place, how would you face tomorrow? 
It's a question I would ask of you. How do you face the fear of tomorrow? When life is throwing curveballs at you at blinding speed, when life is throwing things at you with a destructive force, how do you face the fear of what's going to happen tomorrow? The fear of the unknown is a very powerful thing. Uh, the reality is that most counselors are counseling people because of a core fear of what tomorrow may bring. And the reality for all of us is that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because our names aren't God. We're broken humans. And because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, we take a look at the circumstances of today often and usually, and we try to gauge what will happen tomorrow. And then fear sets in, and it can be overwhelming. It can be debilitating. None of us knows what tomorrow might bring especially when the circumstances of today are really overwhelming. <coughs> and when anxiety sets in, uh, when temptation overwhelms you, right? Uh, when despair gets a grip on you, when, when depression cripples you, when, when loneliness seems too much to bear, when um, shame and worthlessness when all these things come together in one moment in time and they mount an all-out attack on you today in this moment, facing tomorrow can be really fearful. I would propose that the only way to face the fear of the unknown circumstances of tomorrow in the midst of the visible circumstances of today, the only way to do that is to trust in the promises of God's Word and to obey the instructions of God's Word. See, in verse 6, Joshua and the people of Israel are facing insurmountable, overwhelming odds. They're outmanned, they're outgunned by an enemy that is absolutely hell-bent on their absolute destruction. They can visibly see their enemies. They're right there in front of them. They're ready to annihilate them. The circumstances of this moment today had to have been causing a great amount of fear in what tomorrow would bring. Otherwise, why would God step in and speak to Joshua the way he does? God doesn't give a word to someone without a purpose and a reason. In the midst of these overwhelming odds, God steps in and he speaks loud and clear in verse 6. What does he say? Look at it with me. He says, do not be afraid of them. In other words, don't be afraid of the circumstances in front of you today. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So in this verse, God simply promises Joshua the victory over his enemies, right? And he instructs him to not be afraid of tomorrow. And then he also instructs him to, listen, cut the source of his enemy's strength. 
Now, I don't know that I can totally parse that out, but there's something intrinsically that connects with me when I think about cutting the source of my enemy's strength. I pray that the Holy Spirit will use that with you this morning. That there is a source of your enemy's strength that has been defeated at the cross of Christ, but there is also a piece of obedience and trust on your end in which you must get up out of your seat and fight that battle and you must do some work to cut whatever the source of that is. So if your enemy is pornography and the source of strength happens to be in your computer, what do you think you should do with that source? Cut it, right? Uh, If your issue is pride, you get prideful because of the amount of money that you have in the bank, what should you do? Cut the source and give your money away. I think Jesus actually said that and sent the wealthy man down the road upset, right? So I think there's lots of ways you can apply that. I'll just use those two as an off-the-cuff way of trying to parse that out. The reality, though, is that Joshua had to be obedient in this. He had to cut the source of his enemy's strength. Not only that, but he had to destroy the vehicle of war. I don't know what the vehicle is for you. Maybe it's the bottle, maybe it's the pipe. Whatever it is, whatever the source and the vehicle is that enables you to be under the power of your enemy needs to be cut, needs to be destroyed. And in light of the fact that Jesus died at a cross to kill that power for you, that's the power that's been promised to you to walk in. So the only way to face the fear of the unknown circumstances of tomorrow in the midst of the visible circumstances of today is to trust in the promises of God's Word and to obey the instructions of God's Word. Number three, if you're thinking, as you're thinking about that, um, we must be intentionally obedient. Um, there, there's, no, um, there's no such thing as half obedience. There's only obedience and disobedience. That's all there is to it. It's as simple as that. But we like to give ourselves pats on the back for half-hearted obedience. The reality is, let's call it what it is. It's disobedience. And we must be intentionally obedient to God's Word. Uh, In verses 7 through 15, you just take that large chunk of text. Joshua and Israel are intentionally obedient to God's word, right? They chase their enemies down. They completely destroy them. They cut off the source of their strength, the horse's hamstrings. Uh, They burn their vehicles of war, their chariots. They kill the leaders of the enemy nations with swords, very violent. And they destroy their cities with fire. To be honest with you, I I really wish that a, a, a really good movie-making company, producer, would make a movie about this. Not the cheesy ones, on low budget. I wish ones with some good money and good production capability would make a movie about this because I would watch it. Um, Simply because the imagery here is powerful. And it wouldn't be to watch it for the sake of violence. It would be watching it to get an image of what actually takes place in this war that we live in spiritually. But I want you not to miss the summary of what is taking place in verses 7 through 15. Catch the summary again. 
What does Israel do in their intentional obedience? Uh, they chase their enemies down. They chase them. They're intentional. They destroy them. They cut their strength. They burn their vehicles. They kill their supply route, you could say. They kill their leaders. They burn their cities. At the end of the day, Joshua and Israel, according to verse 15, they left absolutely nothing undone that the Lord had commanded. They were intentionally obedient to God's word. How are you doing with this? How are you doing with intentional obedience to God's word as it pertains to your enemies? The war that we are engaged in is a, is a, is a spiritual war. Everything we face in the physical realm has a direct spiritual counterpart at work. Think about it this way. If you're trying to build categories in your mind, Satan is one of those enemies and he is constantly accusing let me just ask you, do you make agreements with those accusations that he makes about you when he says you're stupid, you're worthless, you're dumb, you're no good, you're not loved? Do you agree with those things? Because Satan loves to accuse you. And all you need to do is agree with your enemy to lose the battle. Satan's a category. Sin is a category. The grave is a category, and the world is a category. Satan is constantly accusing. Sin is constantly tempting. What do you do with the temptation in your life? Do you, do you lean into that? <coughs> temptation has got to be rooted out. It's got to be cut. Death. When you think about death. Death is constantly threatening us. It's always letting you know that it's right around the corner. Always reminding you that nobody gets out of here alive. And it's appointed for all of us to die at least once. And for some, twice. The world, if you think about the world as a category of enemy, uh, the world is constantly pulling at you, tugging at you, trying to pull you away from God's design for your life. So you've got categories. Satan accuses, sin tempts, death threatens, and the world pulls away. The only way to engage this war against Satan and sin and the grave and the world is to constantly apply the promises and the instructions of God's word to your life Regular study, regular application of God's word, and prayer. It's the only way. There is no other way. The only way that you stay alive on the front lines of this battle is to engage your enemies, Satan, sin, the grave, and the world, with what? Of the promises and the instructions of God's word. You do what Joshua and Israel did here. You chase your enemies down with God's word. You destroy your enemies with God's word. You cut the strength of your enemies with God's word. You burn their travel ability with God's word. You kill their leaders with God's word. You burn their cities to the ground with God's word. 
You must be intentionally obedient to God's word if you're going to stay alive in this war against Satan's sin, death, and the world. <coughs> and here's the reality. Number four, on the next slide. Number four, war is a part of God's plan. It just is. War is a part of God's plan. You look at verses 16 through 20, you, you see that, that Joshua is victorious in conquering all his enemies with God's help. Okay? <clears throat> but verse 20 is the catch. It's a difficult passage to read. Uh, there are many places in the scriptures that uh, are difficult to read. This is one of them. And, and this is one of them that uh, ties in with many others. We're just going to examine the one for a few moments. Verse 20 says this, It was the Lord's doing. So who did it? Okay. Um, and there's no trickery here. Um, you go back to many different interpretations of the Scriptures. It's, it is what it is. So the Lord did it. What did He do? He hardened their hearts. Whose hearts did He harden? The bad guys. Okay, we'll put it that way. So it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. Why? Why did He harden their hearts? Remember, God did it. They didn't do it. Why did God harden their hearts? He says, so that they should come against Israel in battle. So God hardened these people's hearts so that they would attack his people. That doesn't seem very loving, does it? Why would God do such a thing? Why would God bring hardship into his children's life if he loves them so much? says, in order that they should be devoted to destruction. Who? The bad guys. So he hardened their hearts so they would do something wrong to his kids that he says he loves so that he can absolutely destroy the people whose hearts he hardened. Are you tracking with me? This is a very tough doctrine to work through, and I guarantee you we don't have enough time left in the day to actually parse it all out. Or some of this has to be received on faith, right? Moves on. Says, not only that they should be devoted to destruction, but that they should receive no mercy, but be destroyed. But God is a God of mercy, you say. And if you look in Romans, Paul would say, who are you, O man, to question? How a merciful God decides dispel his mercy. So again, what we see here is that God hardened the hearts of his enemies. They waged war against his people, so he destroyed them. Why? I think to prove the extent of his justice and mercy. That's what I think. There's a lot of other theologians and authors and scholars and people who are much smarter than me that tend to think the same thing, and so it kind of makes sense. That this was done to prove the extent of his justice and his mercy. War, I believe, is part of God's plan because it reveals the extent of his justice and his mercy. Now, oftentimes, uh, we look at the effects of war in our world, <coughs> and we would uh, kind of immediately make this jump to blaming war on the presence of sin and the presence of evil, okay? And while that's definitely true, um, they, they definitely, um, a war is definitely a direct result of the presence of sin and evil. 
Uh, it is equally true uh, that God is completely sovereign and in control in the midst of that. Um, God is, uh, he is in complete control of everything, uh, including the presence of sin and evil in this world. Nothing happens on this earth that doesn't first come across his desk for the final stamp of approval. And go back to the book of Job, if you've ever read it, what happens in the beginning of that is it basically opens up in my summary and says this, and all the angels, along with Satan, the Satan, because it's not actually his name, he doesn't have a name. He's the deceiver, he's the Satan, he's the opposer. Um, it's more of a title than it is a name. All that to be said, they come into God's presence. God's like, hey, what you guys been doing today? And Satan's like, well, kind of been out roaming around, looking for some things to do. Kind of a non-answer to God's question. What does God say? God says, hey, have you considered my man Job? Who initiated what was about to happen? Satan didn't come to God and say, hey, God, I'm bored. I think I'd like to go do X, Y, Z. And God goes, hmm, well, I think it's a good... No, God's the one who initiated it. This is a tough thing to think about. God is the one that said, have you considered my man Job? Similar to this passage here. We see that God is the one who did the hardening of the heart. He is in complete control of everything, including the presence of sin and evil in this world. Nothing happens on this earth that doesn't first come across his desk for the final stamp of approval. This is hard when you think about this in terms of your own suffering. And then you begin to ask the question, why would a good and loving and merciful God allow these horrible things to happen in this life? Most of us in this room have faced some really hard things, but most of us can think of things other people have faced that have been harder I had this conversation with somebody whom I love dearly recently that I wish would begin following the Lord, and she hasn't. And this was the major block for her. It's something we should be sensitive to, not just in somebody's life who is an unbeliever, but in our own lives as believers. We ought not to just give pat answers to it. It would be good for us to think this through. Nothing happens on this earth that doesn't first come across God's desk for the final stamp of approval. In fact, when God drew up the plans for our existence, think about this, think about it this way. If you believe in a God who knows all things and sees all things, right? Then the reality is that when he drew up the plans for our existence, he created the calendars. Created the days on those calendars. And when he created those days, he included the days on those calendars that would be full of suffering, difficulty. He created the days that you were going to sin. And he knew that you were going to do it. So admittedly, once again, very hard doctrine to wrap our minds around. Hard to conceive of a God who is both good and loving, yet also in complete control, who not only allows sin and evil, even though he's fully capable of stopping it, but he also creates the very environment where sin and evil can exist. So at the end of the day, we must remember that God is not the author of evil, okay? uh, but he does create an environment where he maintains complete knowledge <coughs> and control over what's going on and what's going to happen. Uh, it's not like God created Adam and Eve without the foreknowledge of Satan's deception. It's not like he created Adam and Eve without the foreknowledge of Adam and Eve's rebellion. 
God intimately knew every detail of what was going to happen. Yet he was never out of control of the situation. God's never been caught off guard by sin. As much as that can cause questions in our minds, it also can cause great comfort. It can cause questions on one side, that if he was in control and if he was constantly present, then why didn't he stop that? But it can also let us know that we were never alone in the midst of our greatest moments of pain. <clears throat> and if you look ahead to Jesus on the cross, when he's hanging on the cross and he cries out to the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What you hear in Christ is you hear the same human longing in him. But it doesn't change the fact that God never left our sides in the midst of that. If God had completely left this place, this place would be so much worse than it is. So, God is a proactive God who knows all things and controls all things. The final way that I want to try to explain this, and most of you have probably heard me uh, say this a few times, um, I try to make this connection between God's sovereign control and man's responsibility and freedom in choosing uh, through an image of a train on a set of tracks. Um, again, there's some of this that we just have to take by faith. We're not going to be able to get all the answers to this. And in some regard, both and applies. Um, this is the way that I typically like to explain it. You take a train. It's on a set of tracks. The train is an individual's life. And each track, there's two tracks, that keeps that train going where it's supposed to go. Okay? Um, in a sense, those two tracks keep that train on the tracks. And uh, if you were standing in front of the train, not when the train is moving, obviously, but when the train is sitting still, and you're standing in front of the train, you're leaned up against it, your back is against the front of the train, and your feet were on either one of those tracks, and you look down, what you see is absolute distinction between both tracks. You can see the differences between them, right? You can see that they're separate things. But working together, they keep this train where it's supposed to be. A one track is God's sovereign control that never changes. The other track over here on the other side is your freedom to choose and your responsibility in that choice. Your life is on that track, under God's control, as well as your freedom to choose, your responsibility to choose. And yet, if you were to look up from the ground and look out in the distant future, what you would see, what it would appear is as though those two tracks came together. Somehow, the way that it appears is that they come together. And the reality is that those two tracks do work together, even though they are distinct. It's the best image I can give us to understand the way that God's sovereignty works together with our freedom to choose. None of us gets out of here and gets to say, well, I guess God just created me to be that way, therefore I'm just going to have to be passively, like just lay down on the ground and take it, right? At the end of the day, you make that choice and you are held responsible for that choice. There is accountability. big overwhelming principle in all of this is that God does have a plan. And it's a plan that we cannot fully comprehend because we simply are not God. Part of God's plan from the beginning was the presence and is the presence of sin and evil that result then in war. So war is part of God's plan for your life. And without war, there are no giants. Right? 
There's no giants to face if there is no war. And without any giants to face, then there can be no victory and no inheritance. Which leads me to the fifth thing that we see in the text. It's this truth that facing our giants does lead to victory and inheritance. So when I look back on my life, I think you would probably agree, <coughs> it's not the absence of difficulty that caused the most growth in me. Okay? It's not the absence of difficulty that caused the most growth in me. On the contrary, I have grown the most in the midst of intense opposition. This is true not only of the individual believer's life, but this was true of the church in the New Testament. The thing that we often want, though, is we want all the bad things that frustrate us in this life that are contrary to God to go away. I would say that the most growth will happen in the church, especially, I believe, in the church in America, uh, when more opposition happens. There's a reason that the Chinese church is growing by leaps and bounds while the Christian church in America is dying. There's a reason for that. I think it's because there's a lack of opposition here. We think there's opposition, but I can guarantee you the opposition we face right now is nowhere close. Nowhere even, it's not even in the same light year as the opposition that the early church faced. One day, I believe it probably will happen. And what I think will happen in that time is the church will grow. False believers will be cut away. True believers will be raised up. That's what I think will probably happen. Regardless of all that, when I look back at my life, it's not the absence of difficulty that caused the most growth in me. On the contrary, I grow the most in the midst of intense opposition. Same as when you want to get buff, you lift weights. What are you doing? You're using opposition to your muscles to grow your muscles. So the principle is true in all sorts of different ways. But the truth in all of this is that my life has been the most fruitful when my life feels the most overwhelming. Um, my life is the most unfruitful when I am hiding from the wartime giants that are right in front of me. Okay. Uh, you look at verses 21 to 23 um, in this final portion. Joshua and Israel, man, they don't tap out after waging war for a very long time, says. So it's not like just a quick battle and it's over. This is war for a very long time with their enemies in verse 18. Joshua and Israel have to face their giants, the Anakim, from the hill country. And they cut them off, it says, and they devote them to destruction with their cities. The result of facing their giants is that they take the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua then gave it for inheritance to Israel. You see, without this war taking place, there would have been no giants to face. And without facing any giants, there would have been no victory. And without any victory, there would have been no inheritance as well. The reality in all this is that God's word is not proven true in the absence of giants or war. It's not. I mean, where was it always proven true? I mean, you read the whole Bible, you, you just see it over and over and over again. God's word is constantly proven to be true, not in the absence of giants and war, but in the presence of giants and war. So facing our giants leads to victory and inheritance. So what giants have you been hiding from lately? What war have you been tapped out from lately? What war are you trying to fight on your own? What's your wartime strategy? Do you have one? 
You can't sleepwalk through life without a wartime strategy. You have to admit that life is sometimes overwhelming. You have to admit that the fear of what tomorrow might bring is crippling. You have to trust in the promises of God's Word. You have to obey the instructions of God's Word. God's Word is simply meant to help you face tomorrow with courage and and intentional obedience. You have to understand that war is part of God's plan to grow you into the image of God. Therefore, you must face those giants in your life and lay hold of your inheritance in Christ. In conclusion, that's the whole message. Our inheritance is in Christ. Can't win this war alone. You need a wartime strategy if you're going to make it out of this alive. Well, the reality is that the best interpretation of this text is to not only interpret the physical story in light of the spiritual war, but it's also to interpret the story in light of Christ. The reality is that Jesus is our Joshua. He is our general. He is our leader. He's the one who went before us. The promised land is our heaven. The enemies that were conquered by Joshua are strikingly similar to the enemies that were defeated at the cross in the empty tomb of Jesus. This is the message of the gospel in the book of Joshua, really. You must submit to and surrender to and trust in Christ because in Christ you have a Savior who experienced overwhelming opposition in this life. In Christ, you have a Savior who trusted the Father's promises, who followed His Father's instructions perfectly. In Christ, you have a Savior who was intentional in His obedience. In Christ, you have a Savior who fulfilled God's plan for war against all that is evil in Satan, sin, the grave, and the world. In Christ, you have a Savior who actually faced down your giants for you and secured your victory, secured your inheritance at the cross in the empty tomb. So the reality of the gospel is that the war has actually been won. It has been won. The problem is that so many so-called Christians walk in defeat because they have not totally surrendered to the work of Christ at the cross have not yet done what Jesus said to do, which is to pick up your cross and walk with a wartime mentality in the finished work of that cross. Nothing on this physical earth is as it should be. Because of Christ, because of His work at the cross, because of His work at the empty tomb, you have the spiritual victory. You can look forward to the promised land in heaven where there is no more mourning, no more tears, no more pain, no more sin. In heaven, that is where you fully experience the final words of this text. Look at them with me in verse 23. We learn in the final words that the land had rest from war. See, our true place of rest will be our final resting place, not in the dirt here on earth, but in heaven where peace and triumph will be complete. In summary, your wartime strategy needs to be Christ's finished work at the cross and the empty tomb with the hope of heaven in front of you. Amen?
Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the beautiful work of Jesus who came, lived, died, was resurrected, and then went to heaven and left us with the promise of his return, which teaches us that this life is not all there is to our existence, and that we do have a promised land to look forward to, that we can have hope. This life is not meaningless, it's not hopeless. We thank you for that truth, and we ask, Father, that you would apply that message over us as we turn our eyes to the work of Jesus at the cross, where his body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. We pray, Father, that you would use our time together this morning to save those who are headed towards complete destruction, and that you would give the gift of eternal life and the gift of regenerated, brand new hearts that come alive to worship you. Pray, Father, that you would do that, trusting that you are the only one who can do that work inside of us, because you are sovereign. We pray that we trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.